This is a CBC Podcast. I began as a laborer and as a truck driver on the North Shore. My father was a unionized electrician. And I worked my way up and became a lawyer and a royal commissioner charged with cleaning up crime and violence in the Quebec construction industry. I was then asked to take over a company that was in pretty bad financial shape. We enhanced productivity. We made a profit. Well, what we... message can Canadians take from that experience? Competence. Knowledge of the real problems of the real world. Someone who has had hands-on, not, not theoretical knowledge learned from, from uh, speeches or books, hands-on, real serious, pro dealing with real serious problems that affect the lives of real people. And that's what's lacking in Ottawa. That's Quebec businessman Brian Mulroney back in 1983, speaking with then-host of the House, Denise Rudnicki. Then, Mulroney was just a candidate to lead the Progressive Conservatives. He would become one of Canada's most consequential prime ministers. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, Mulroney remembered. Former Prime Minister Joe Clark on how his colleague reshaped Canada's role on the world stage. Plus, Aaron O'Toole and John Baird on how Mulroney's highs and lows changed the Conservative movement, and whether his big ambitions would fit in today's politics. Also on the program, CSIS says scientists at a top-tier infectious disease lab work to benefit the Chinese government. How serious is the fallout? And what the Online Harms Act could mean for what you see on your computer. But we begin with how Brian Mulroney changed Canada. The House is now in session. He was committed to this country, loved it with all his heart, and served it many, many years in many different ways. As Prime Minister, he unleashed free enterprise. He crushed inflation. He signed a free, the, one of the most important free trade agreements in the history of the world with the United States of America that lay, remains largely in place today. He also did something that I find quite remarkable in that he made sure Quebecers felt like they belonged in Canada. He tried to get the current brand of conservatives to realize that acid rain, climate change, ozone, these kinds of issues transcend partisan politics. He was a friend, <clears throat> first of all a friend. Yes, we, we had reconciled, but very late, too late, so many years, at the end of the day, it's a lot of years lost for a marvelous friendship. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Pierre Polyev, Jagmeet Singh, and Elizabeth May. And that last voice, former Quebec Premier Lucien Bouchard, who split with Mulroney over Quebec separatism and reconciled a short time ago. Just a few of the many tributes that have poured in reflecting on Mulroney's legacy. I spoke to Brian Mulroney a few months ago and had the chance to ask him about his contributions, starting with what he thought was his most important contribution on the world stage. I don't know that I had one, but I'll um, let the historians deal with that. I was, I was uh, very pleased, of course, with our fight that we had for to end uh, apartheid in South Africa and liberate Nelson Mandela. That was a a major victory for for Canada, Canada and the Commonwealth. We played, you know, the the negotiations for the free trade agreement uh, and NAFTA, which have transformed our economies and created millions of jobs at home. And things like that are, are big ticket items. 
and I'm very proud of them. But I, you know, you have to ask historians <laughs> what they think. I'm, I'm hoping you'll indulge me with one more question about your own record because you did experience such incredible highs and lows at times, and I wonder what um, lesson can be taken from that, what lesson you would pass on to other leaders about uh, your, your domestic political experience. Yeah, well, it's exactly what you've said. There are going to be good days and bad, and uh, you're going to be subject to enormous criticism, but you've got to hold firm. If you believe in what you're putting forward and what you're saying, then you have to have to keep to keep steady. Look, just go back to 1988. I just about got lynched in the free trade agreement. Uh, the liberals and the NDP and the media and the universities and everyone was opposed to me. But if you look at it today, there was a recent poll uh, earlier this year where you know. 92% of the NDP were in favor of NAFTA, and the, and the Liberals were 91%, I think, and the Conservatives were 89%. So things change. If you, if you think you're right, and it's in the long-term interest of Canada, not popular, but in the long-term interests of Canada, for our children and our grandchildren, if you do it with that in mind, and you hold firm against the criticisms and the attacks, then you're going to be rewarded 25 or 30 years later. One person who had a remarkable relationship with Brian Mulroney, first as a leadership rival, then as close colleagues, was former Prime Minister Joe Clark. I'm very pleased to have him in studio. Mr. Clark, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. What do you think of when you hear Mr. Mulroney reflecting on his legacy like that? He's more modest than he should be. Uh, One of the things that was interesting about Brian around the table, international tables, the G7, other things, uh, was that he was not obstreperous. But when he made a point, he was listened to. And that was partly because in the international scene as well as at home, he worked hard at his relationships. He came to know people. He came to know the things that interested them. He came particularly to know the things that interested both of us. And so his interventions almost always had weight. That was the case in South Africa, of course, where he had a very strong relationship with Nelson Mandela and with others. But it was also the case in, um, in, a, in a multitude of other fora. We've heard that uh, Mr. Polyev, the prime minister, have often sought his advice in recent years. What was it, do you think, about him and his advice that made it valuable even now? Well, I think that I don't want to demean uh, other conversations. It's natural enough that a serving leader uh, would want to uh, make reference to a highly successful former leader. And Brian would have been courteous, and he would have uh, had those, uh, those conversations. The times were different then. I think the parties were different then. I've reflected often on the fact that uh, Mr. Mulroney and I came into politics at the same time under John Diefenbaker. And what Mr. Diefenbaker's theme was, which caught the country and caught the two of us, was that he had a positive vision. His emphasis was vision, not not division. And uh, that is a difference between those times and these times. Uh, I think that Brian would have been alarmed at the extent of division that we uh, that now populates our our country. And he would have probably offered good advice to people who were uh, in the field now as to how they should respond to that. He was a remarkably positive person, but he was also, and 
one under, overlooks this about leaders, he was a very hard-working person to the point that uh, even when we were still in office, I sometimes worried about his health. He'd been up reading his briefs. Uh, he ran a cabinet, but he had to know where people were coming from. He did that extremely well. Let's talk a little bit more about leadership. You were a minister in his government for eight years. Can you give me an example or a story of what he was like as a political leader? Well, one of the things that always struck me was that uh, he would have a fair number of meetings in his office without an agenda. Five or six or seven ministers would come in. And they were sometimes ministers who were at the heart of the action, but they were often ministers who were not sure that they were really as much a part of the whole as they wanted to be. He did this quite regularly. A side note, some people were surprised that I was appointed foreign minister. I wasn't at all. I knew that he knew that he needed me and he thought I could do the job. But also, as foreign minister, I was out of the country a lot. <laughs> and, there was, and there was some value to that. Something to a others, little wily? <laughs> well, there was that, but it was also a, a very smart thing to do because he had he developed those strong relations with other ministers uh, whom he knew, and he developed great loyalty from them. People who had not necessarily been his supporters when they began respected how hard he worked and how high his expectations of them was. Let's talk a bit about Canada's role in the world under Mr. Mulroney, which, of course, as foreign minister, you were an important part of. He spoke with pride, certainly when I interviewed him uh, and elsewhere, about Canada's work ending apartheid in South Africa. What do people now perhaps not appreciate about the resistance from other leaders that Mr. Mulroney was up against? There was some hard resistance. Mrs. Thatcher, of course, was opposed to this kind of, of movement. But Brian had a very good relation with her, uh, didn't persuade her, but allowed us to open channels so we could work very closely with other officials in the British government who, who shared our view. And he developed and maintained very strong relationships, personal relationships with, uh, with other heads of, of government. I did the same on the foreign minister level. And uh, we were able, I think, uh, to be reasonable in the approaches we put forward. We knew what our final goal was. We knew also that we had to bring a lot of disparate members of a very broad commonwealth together on this matter. I suppose I could say I made laid a lot of the groundwork, but he made the sale at the end. His relation with other leaders, which he had earned in his personal contact with them, made an immense difference in uh, getting agreement to a response to a problem that changed the life of South Africa and I think changed the, de- the relations between developed and developing countries at that time. Is there a particular moment you think of? I mean, we talk so much about Margaret Thatcher and all of this. It's something he did that really helped or a conversation he had that really helped clinch this. No, but I can tell you what it was in part. It was a sense of humor. His sense of humor was known in Canada. It was also uh, uh, evident in those those discussions, which were often intense. And he wasn't mean when he, when he was never cruel in what he said, but he always found some sort of offbeat tone that could change the, the nature of the discussion and that was not offensive to anyone, but everyone thought was uh, a contribution to the well-being of the discussion. It was not just apartheid. Um, you know, Canada's relationship with the United States, uh, the, the, the fight against communism, there was so much happening at that time. And much has been said about how Mr. Mulroney shaped 
Canada's place or reshaped Canada's place in the world at that moment. What what do you think his legacy is on that front? Well, I think he did reshape it. And I think it was because he understood the different nature of the other countries he was dealing with. I don't know that there's a Canadian who understand the United St- understood the United States as well as Brian did. And uh, he didn't let that cow him, but he knew how he might be able to uh, persuade a sometimes difficult country on those issues. And again, he demonstrated an interest in them. That's an interesting point because what made his cabinet work so well was that he demonstrated a real interest, not the boss down, uh, but as the first among colleagues with a cabinet that was quite disparate, with a commonwealth that was quite disparate. And that won the respect of, uh, of almost everyone else around the table. You have, in fact, written that he had an activist agenda. Uh, you said that at one point, um, the free trade deal with the United States, the environment, the issues we just spoke about. What do you think pushed him to take such great strides? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that he wanted results. Uh, he wanted to do things that would endure. Uh, was that partly with his own legacy in mind? Perhaps. But it was, was it also his job? It certainly was. That's what a, a leader of governments uh, should uh, try to do. And it's a sense that he inspired in his colleagues uh, around the table. People sometimes are tempted to see leaders as a person alone. What's really critical is the capacity of a leader to work with others, including others who might have reservations or might have their own doubts about their capacity. Brian was able to bring the best out in a quite a wide range of people, whether those were around his cabinet table, where he showed real respect for their their interests, their individual preoccupations, or whether it was in uh, in dealing with uh, with international governments. Governments. Just before I let you go, sir, is there a particular conversation between you and him, a particular moment that has been coming to mind? It's a strange one because uh, he and I were of the same age. Our eyes started to fade about the same time, his slightly before me. I at least was not willing to admit it, and I recalled one day going into the House of Commons to read a bilingual statement in the House. I got through the English all right, but as I was reading the French, my eyes were failing. Brian was there without interrupting events at all. He simply got up, came over three desks, handed me his glasses, which I put on and finished the statement. He didn't gloat about it. He didn't say, bring your glasses the next time. Uh, But that quiet act, recognizing that I needed something that I couldn't provide myself, was quite typical. It's trivial in many ways, but it represented uh, in a very busy man, in a man with all sorts of things on his mind, a, a capacity to take account of when someone else needed help and how to deliver it. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Former Prime Minister Joe Clark. As we talk about the legacy of Brian Mulroney, what kind of lasting impact has he had on conservative politics in this country? He won two back-to-back majorities, the only conservative to do so since Sir John A. Macdonald. But shortly after he left, the progressive conservatives were reduced to two seats in the House to be reborn later as the Conservative Party of Canada. Joining me to discuss, Aaron O'Toole, former Conservative leader, and John Baird, former Conservative cabinet minister. Thank you both for taking the time. Thank you. Great to be with you. Now, you both knew Brian Mulroney. Aaron O'Toole, I'll start with you. Can you share a memory about what made him so extraordinary? He was a great father, prime minister, but an amazing friend. He was legendary for his phone calls. But what made Brian very special is he would not just call when the sun was shining, He would call when the clouds were stormy. And after my reform 
uh, vote of my caucus. I put my phone away. Um, I wasn't taking any calls. I was kind of processing a pretty low point in my life. This is, this is. I have to say, this is the moment where you had lost the confidence of the caucus. Yes. I, I lost the vote, mm-hmm. and I'm back, and I'm kind of in shock. And so I put my phone away. Brian called my wife Rebecca's phone. And Rebecca, who'd had surgery, limps into my office where I'm sitting and said, it's Brian Mulrooney. And I'll tell you, those things uh, will be with you for your whole life. And so some friends will be there, especially in politics, when the momentum's hot and you're winning and everything's is going great. A true friend and the mark of a good character uh, is when they call when things are not that way. And uh, I'll cherish that, that memory. That's really lovely. John, John Baird? I think for me, it's just how he modernized the Conservative Party. Uh, we were a party that was got too used to losing and not being in government. He uh, transformed that we were now a competitive political party in Quebec. Uh, you know, on so many little things. You know, he tripled the number of women in the federal cabinet. And in the past, before he did, on his first day as, as prime minister, uh, there was two women in the, in the previous cabinet, and they were health and then social services, uh, almost a, a pink ghetto in government, and he made women consequential ministers, ministers of foreign affairs, of trade, treasury board, uh, uh, consequential uh, positions. You know, there was, there was actually a debate in the 1980s whether uh, a Sikh could be a member of the RCMP with a turban, and he would have none of that, and uh, overruled all the objections and uh, pushed it through. Uh, he had the ban of gays and lesbians serving in the Canadian Armed Forces. P- people forget, uh, you know, uh, how much he reformed the conservative movement in this country. Is there a particular interaction you had with him that stays with you, John Baird? I think that uh, the one that for me would be when I was contemplating uh, stepping down from federal politics. Uh, I had breakfast with him, and he was just so generous uh, in his time with giving me advice uh, and counsel. And then uh, when I finally did, he and uh, Peter Monk brought me onto the uh, Barrett Gold International Advisory Board. So uh, Mr. Murray went from being sort of an idol uh, to a mentor uh, to then a friend and a colleague, which was uh, pretty remarkable for me to, to think of, uh, uh, of, uh, of, of him in that role. I remember being in um, at, uh, the day before one of our Barrick meetings, and I had met him in the lobby of the hotel, and the phone rings in my hotel room, and he said, John, it's Brian. Would you like to go for lunch? And I thought, oh, my God, he's calling him Brian. He's calling, introducing himself to me as Brian, if I only thought of that when I was a uh, political activist as in my teenage years. Um, what was it, Aaron O'Toole, about Brian Mulrooney or, or about the time when he was leader that allowed him to win those back-to-back uh, majorities? Well, I think it was he was a force of nature as a campaigner. He was uh, outgoing, charismatic, charming. Um, I think, as John said, he he modernized and made the PC party at the time a little more professional. He was also coming in at the tail end of a, a tired and you know very much primed to be kicked out uh, Trudeau government. We're we're seeing that happen again, actually. But I think his personal appeal and his campaigning ability led to that historic biggest win in Canadian history. And then the next election was on free trade agreement, which really has been the underpinning of our economic success for the last generation plus of the country. So Brian um, always hit for the fences and and um, really looked for long-term prosperity and success for Canada. And we've never stood as strong on the world stage than we did under Brian Mulroney. He was there at the right, he was the right man at the right time. I mean, there was Margaret Thatcher, 
and Ronald Reagan, and uh, there was the, the the consequential decision to say we can't contain communism, we've got to overcome and defeat it, uh, and he was there with uh, an oar in the water paddling in the same direction. Uh, the consequential changes in South Africa, I mean, Canada really punched above our weight uh, on that. Uh, you look at the Canadian economy, people have talked about free trade or, and tax reform. I mean, he, he privatized more Crown corporations than Margaret Thatcher did. And people forget today that, you know, Air Canada or Canadian National were, uh, were uh, taxpayer-owned uh, companies. And you look at those companies, they're so demonstrably stronger and better than they were uh, before they were privatized. That success, of course, a sharp contrast to the end of his time in office, after which the PCs were diminished to just two seats in the House of Commons. Well, in fairness, Brian Mulroney left, uh, when Brian Mulroney left uh, uh, office uh, as prime minister, we had a strong majority government. So, you, John Baird, are you suggesting that that uh, diminishment, none of that has to do with Brian Mulroney? I mean, I think Brian Mulroney once told me this. He said, John, why did I win? People were tired of Pierre Trudeau. Uh, why did Crecho win? People were tired of me. But uh, I have no doubt that if Brian Murray had led the party, we would have got more than two seats. But I, I will say, um, and Aaron O'Toole, perhaps I'll put that, this to you. I mean, the GST, the failures of Charlottetown and Meech, there were things that uh, Canadians, I, I, in fact, somebody was just sharing his approval ratings at the time. They were they were quite low. Some of that, do you agree, Aaron O'Toole? was about the circumstances of Mr. Mulroney as well. Well, what was remarkable in that time is the caucus was united. I I could have only dreamed. (laughs) My my polling numbers were higher, but I didn't get that degree of of loyalty. Look, the biggest challenge Brian had was the fact that these market reforms, especially the GST, which were good, that sort of consumption-based tax is actually what we should be doing more of and and, and less income and less risk tax, tax on risk. But it came into force at a time of economic recession. So it seemed like Mulroney's changes were, were hurting Canada when actually they were making us stronger in the long term. But I think the cumulative effect during a tough recession in the early part of the 90s really led to problems for the PCs. The constitutional changes and, and debates uh, hurt the the movement in the West. So I think Brian stepped away trying to do the best for the party and the country. But I agree with John, like his campaigning skills, they probably would have fared better if he'd stayed. But he did that again for the, the well-being of the party and the country. John Baird, I'd like to ask you, um, you know, you've provided advice, I know, to the current leader of the Conservative Party. What do you think the lessons for the modern Conservative Party are from Brian Mulroney's tenure? Is be bold. Uh, don't seek to be popular. Uh, seek to do the right thing for Canada. Uh, be big and bold. Be transformational. Take on the tough fights. And uh, don't be weak and afraid to take on a fight uh, for fear of defeat. Uh, you know, if you, uh, uh, Brian Murray once said to me, he said, John, I'd rather people criticize me for what I do than for doing nothing. And uh, that would be good advice to uh, to Pierre and his team. Do you think, John Baird, that there is still that kind of public appetite? In, in the conversation we just had with Joe Clark, he talked about Mulroney's ambitious agenda, constitutional, environmental, international. Do, do you think the public still wants that kind of ambition and boldness? I, I do. I, I really do. Uh, and what Brian Mulroney was able to do, though, is at first he had to have a strong uh, mandate from the Canadian people, and he got two very comfortable majority governments that, frankly, we haven't seen. Uh, even his second majority government was pretty uh, was pretty unbelievably strong. Um, so, uh, you know, people forget when uh, when 
uh, I first was elected and when Prime Minister Harper became uh, became uh, Prime Minister, we had 125 seats out of a 308-seat parliament, a very precarious uh, minority government. We had only 20 seats out of 404 in the Senate, so it was a much different uh, circumstance. So I think uh, I think Pierre's biggest uh, lesson is to uh, is to uh, run a national campaign that appeals to uh, a large swath of the uh, of the electorate and uh, and get a comfortable majority so you can uh, a big majority so you can do big things uh, for the country. Aaron O'Toole, what do you think about doing big things at this time? I think the strength of Brian Mulroney was the fact that he looked at the best for Canada and respected the regions and the provinces. He was a big defender of the French language. His first wedge by the Liberals was the minority French language issue in Manitoba. He handled that with a plum. He invested in Hibernia despite the economic challenges, and that gave Newfoundland and Labrador its its real economic success in the last two decades. He ended the divisive national energy program of of Pierre Trudeau. Um, He really respected the provinces and let let them run their destiny in terms of economic opportunity. Um, And he never gave up on folks. He used that, that quote to me. It was a Stanfield quote that he always tried to drive consensus. And so you could even see within Meech and Charlottetown, the constitutional wrangling and negotiations, he was always trying to find a better deal for Indigenous Canadians, uh, for the French language, to bring Quebec formally into the constitution. Um, I really do think he always put Canada first. And that sometimes meant being a little bit more progressive or pragmatic um, to get things done. And I, I think... Pierre, who will likely be the next prime minister, there's a lot to learn from that. Meech, NAFTA, are modern conservatives that bold, Aaron O'Toole? I believe so. You know, they rise to the challenges of the day. And the challenges of the day now uh, really are a bit of the erosion and trust in institutions, the rise of a, a bipolar world with with Chinese ambitions and the war in Ukraine. You, you know, you see a lot of these things. Brian Mulroney was the first... Uh, world leader to recognize the independence of Ukraine in 1991. So I think there's a, a, a time for this boldness. There's a time for Canada to to spend more on defense and to take its more traditional role as the leading middle power, a G7 power. And I think Canadians want to change. And I think um, the Conservatives may have another win that rivals kind of 1984. And that gives an opportunity to really build long-term prosperity and really make sure we reestablish our reputation on the world stage. John Baird, one thing that I think has been striking for people in the in recent days is hearing how Mr. Mulroney offered advice to Prime Minister Trudeau. He offered advice to Pierre Polyev. Um, what advice has Brian Mulroney given you over the years that you or, or, or the party should really be listening to today? Well, I think when I became Minister of the Environment, he said, John, uh, you can't be seen as dismissive of the environment. Uh, think big, do bold things. Um, we increased by 30% the number of protected areas in Canada in just two years. Um, we, uh, he, when I went to my first UN climate change conference, uh, he said, uh, bring some advisors with you. And I said, well, who should I, who should I get as an advisor? And he recommended a few people, including the former Quebec Premier, Pierre Mark Johnson, uh, who gave me phenomenal advice and we became friends. He also recommended a woman named Mary Simon and a woman by the name of Liz Dowdswell, who was the former uh, head of the, the United Nations Environmental Program. And of course, uh, Mary Simon is now the Governor General and Liz Dowswell has just retired as Lieutenant Governor. So he, uh, he, uh, he knew how to identify talent, that's for sure. Aaron O'Toole, a piece of advice? Really, it was 
to put the country first. And for me, you know, I had a few uh, discussions with him in the midst of the pandemic when I was trying to make sure we balanced the need to get people vaccinated and to keep the economy open. It was the big struggle at the time and people were worried about restrictions and it was challenging for a, a sort of free market libertarian conservative party at times. And so he was always saying, put the country first, put the long-term well-being of Canadians first. And I think he did that as prime minister. That advice to me was invaluable. And I said, even if you were down a good talk with Brian Mulroney, there would always be some jokes, as John would uh, John would know whether your eyes were Irish or not Irish. They were smiling <laughs> after a call with Brian Mulroney, and that will stay with uh, all his friends. And I think it will stay with, with hundreds of thousands, millions of Canadians, the impact he left. You both refer to him as a friend, so let me say my condolences to both of you. Thank you both so much for these reflections. Thank you, and our condolences are with Mila and the family as well. Absolutely, I'll echo that. John Baird and Aaron O'Toole. Lots more coming up on the House podcast, including will the government's new Online Harms Act make the internet safer or will it put a chill on free speech? I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to Canada's most popular political affairs program. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. And you can find news and interviews on our website. That's cbc.ca slash the house. A top-tier infectious diseases lab, secretive and sudden dismissals, and concerns about foreign involvement. The story of the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg has all the hallmarks of a James Bond movie. It was creating a lot of political drama this week after the government released hundreds of pages of documents related to the firing of two scientists who worked there. Health Minister Mark Holland insisted to reporters that national security was not breached. I'm absolutely certain, and you will see it from the documents, that no sensitive information um, left uh, the labs. Uh, and, trying to get and, it. And, and what I also am certain of, and I wouldn't have been certain of this in 2019, and neither would the Public Health Agency of Canada, uh, that the lengths to which China was willing to go, uh, and is willing to go in a contemporary context, um, to influence uh, science and, and obtain information, is deeply disturbing. And yes, China is... Uh, you know, by all evidence, um, trying to interfere in our domestic circumstance. The same could be said of Russia, and that the 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 foreign the question of foreign interference now is a very real one in a way that in 2019 uh, it simply wasn't. Two national security experts are here to help explain the situation. Dan Stanton was a high-ranking CSIS official for decades. Wesley Wark is a senior fellow with the Center for International Governance and Innovation. Welcome to the house to you both. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Kelly. Wesley, I'm going to start by asking you, um, you know, more than 600 pages of documents here. Can you sum up the story that they tell? Sure. You know, I think the concern always, and this this, uh, story goes back many, many years, in fact, to 2018. It took a while before it became public. The concern was always that this was a big espionage story that there were spies at work in the National Microbiology Lab that had somehow exfiltrated sensitive information that could involve biological warfare to China. I think the reality as we come to learn, and it's been a slow and painful process in terms of, of, of the production of documents by the government, the reality is different, but no less disturbing. The reality is that this very special laboratory, Canada's only what's called level four laboratory, that can handle the most dangerous pathogens and 
and, and do a lot of very sensitive research. This laboratory had an abysmal security culture and faced many breaches of security practices, including by the two scientists who were at the heart of this case. Dan, what was it that these scientists were up to that has caused such concern? Well, I think from what we've read so far, Catherine, it's that what you know began as a security screening investigation for clearances with CSIS evolved into an investigation. And this is exactly that. What were they doing? And it looks like there there is a possibility that some IP, some information that would uh, give China an advantage economically may have been passed back. And this is reflected in a patent that apparently one of the scientists had signed. So it looks like a routine, regular day at the office screening investigation, which then they discovered there was a little bit more. Whether it was an opportunity a scientist might have taken perhaps to make some money off of it, or whether it was a grand design plan from Beijing, I think less likely the latter. There's a possibility some uh, information was passed on to China that, that would give them an advantage economically. So I'd say economic espionage, possibly. Wesley, so much of this centers around the extent to which national security was at risk. You point to that with your comments about espionage. On the one hand, we have the comments we heard from the health minister a minute ago saying, you know, no sensitive information left the labs. Pierre Polyev saying the scientists were able to transfer sensitive intellectual property and dangerous pathogens to the People's Republic of China. Who's right? Well, it's a good question, Catherine. I think that any minister who goes on the record and says there was no national security threat and proves to be wrong about that is is putting themselves in a very perilous position. So I'm inclined to believe the general statement from uh, the Minister of Health, Mark Holland. What I don't really accept from Minister Holland is a couple of things. One is just the assurances, very general level of assurances that, that the problems that were identified going back to 2019 have all been fixed. No examples, no concrete information provided about fixed how. We're just meant to trust the minister that, that this horrible set of security breaches and terrible security culture at this institution, you know, that's all been fixed behind the scenes. I don't accept that. I also don't accept Minister Holland's argument that, well, you know, this goes back to 2018, 2019, and we didn't really think that Chinese foreign interference was a serious threat mm-hmm. at the time. It's absolutely clear to anybody who studied this that the government security intelligence agencies have been concerned about security intelligence problems and threats from China, foreign interference, for at least, I would say, a decade before 2019. So the notion that, well, that was a different time Mm -hmm. and we didn't really know anything about China, that just doesn't fly to me. Dan Stanton, let's get you in here. Yeah, I, I just had a little chuckle at that one when the, that it was news to, I guess, the government. Perhaps if they weren't reading intelligence assessments, that would that would make a lot of sense. But, uh, you know, this has been around for a long time. And let's just go right back to September last year. The heads of the Five Eyes, the humid heads, were at 60 Minutes. They were in Silicon Valley, and they were speaking about... Uh, it was obviously China. They're talking about the espionage threat. But it's not the traditional classic state-on-state espionage threat where you get someone to put files under their coat and go out a building. It's economic. The Chinese are doing this. They had an MSS operation targeted General Electric to get the most advanced propulsion system. Premier Xi wanted that. That's what they want. They want to get what will advance their economy. And I think this may be a manifestation of that. Not that it was a plan to go to the lab. I think this scientist may have had a niche access there that China may have exploited to get a patent or something, some type of research Canada is doing that's going to give them China an advantage. And that may be what we're seeing a a bit of a, a sign on. 
Uh, Wesley, the conservatives are suggesting that this lab should not be allowed to collaborate with China. Is that the right approach? I think, you know, I think these days uh, collaboration has to be addressed very carefully. Minister Holland again suggested that that, um, no collaboration is happening at the moment and any future collaboration would be scrutinized very carefully. But but the question is scrutinized on on what grounds. And and what that really requires is a pretty intimate knowledge of of what are the institutions in China doing similar kind of research that might be adversarial to Canada's interests. What are those connected to the, you know, the military industrial complex, if you like, in China. China is a huge player in all kinds of technological fields, including biomedical research, which is partly why I'm a little bit doubtful that China was able to kind of seize a major advantage from exploiting Canada. What what really strikes me about the documents that have been released, and they've given us a, a kind of in-depth picture of these two scientists, you know, just on the on the human level. And, and it also reinforces my sense that this is a security culture problem. These two scientists claimed over and over again in their security interviews with CSIS and, and the other reviews that were conducted that they were just scientists. They didn't know anything about politics. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to get science done. They didn't care about security protocols. They always got in the way. You know, uh, we were just busy scientists doing doing good science. If you take their word for it, you know, and there certainly are elements of uh, the interviews where they weren't being, tr- you know, completely truthful, clearly, trying to kind of disguise, in particular, Dr. Key's connections with various Chinese research institutes. Um, you know, if, if you have a look at this, you have to step back and say, how is it that, that um, you know, people in these kinds of positions of trust could be allowed to go about their work with, with so little uh, knowledge of the geopolitical world in which they live? Mm-hmm. They bl- actually blamed the Public Health Agency of Canada. They said, oh, we weren't given proper training. You know, we, we weren't told about all these security protocols. The truth is probably somewhere in between. You know, you have to trust the scientific mm-hmm. community to be knowledgeable about geopolitical threats these days, and you certainly have to have a much stronger kind of security lens that you apply to these practices. So, Dan, what is the lesson that we can take away from all of this about foreign interference and national security more broadly? I, I think it's that everything that the government has been warned about for the last number of years, maybe 20 years, of the, the sophistication and the growth of the threat. But I'd also throw in a cautionary remark, the risk of sounding like a humanist. Sometimes you see the reaction coming from the other side about we need to ban all, you know, cooperation here and ban this. We've had some, I'd say, a little slightly disquieting developments lately where we've had an applicant for a visa who wants to go to Waterloo to study physics and you're denied a visa and the federal court judge said because there might be a risk they'll commit espionage with absolutely no prior experience or linkage to espionage entities. And what I'm saying is I would hope that some departments don't take something like this and in the effort of showing due diligence and national security interests end up harming what are viable scientific research exchanges between Canada, exchanges that can actually benefit Canadians and also benefit foreign students that that we may end up living in Canada. So I, I wouldn't want people to take what happened at the lab and turn that into some sort of, I'm not saying McCarthyist, but don't overreact and deny good opportunities of exchanges that Canada actually needs. Thank you both for shedding light on this situation. Thank you, Catherine. Thank Terrific. you again. Enjoyed it. Dan Stanton and Wesley Work.
The long-awaited Online Harms Act was tabled this week. It's meant to make the internet safer for kids and curb hateful content. It takes on everything from online bullying to sexual content posted without consent. But it's not without controversy. The legislation also creates a new hate crime offence under the criminal code, raises the penalties for spreading hate, and boosts the maximum sentence for advocating genocide to up to life in prison. Those penalties have the Canadian Civil Liberties Association worried. Here's the executive director, Noah Mendelssohn-Aviv. I think that it's very hard, if not impossible, to distinguish between strong emotional expressions of disapproval, public discourse about contentious issues that raise high feelings, that is very difficult to distinguish between that and what the government wants to criminalize as hate speech. That's the hate speech side of it, and you now have this other piece which most people have not paid a lot of attention to until now, but the advocating genocide piece, which is extremely broadly defined in the criminal code. This is a speech act that is now attached to a harsher sentence than some fairly serious acts of violence. The act creates a new digital safety office, an ombudsman, and finally a digital safety commission made up of five people to enforce the rules, including having the power to order platforms to remove so-called revenge porn or content that sexually victimizes a child. The Conservatives aren't impressed. In a statement, leader Pierre Polyev said, We believe that these serious acts should be criminalized, investigated by police, tried in court and punished with jail, not pushed off to a new bureaucracy. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association is also sceptical. We are looking at a three to five person body of government appointees who are going to be making up rules and guidelines, enforcing them, interpreting them, judging whether or not they have been um, followed, and then executing some kind of response if they haven't. So judge, jury, executioner all rolled into this one body with rules that have not yet been established and that we can't even yet speak to because... We don't yet know what they're going to be. This is the second iteration of this bill. The government introduced another version of it in 2021. It was widely criticized and died on the order paper when an election was called. So does this new bill strike the right balance when it comes to freedom of speech and policing harmful content on the Internet? I went up to Parliament Hill to speak to Justice Minister Arif Farani. Minister, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. One fear about the online harms legislation has been that it will lead to a chill on free speech, uh, a fear that people could self-censor, whether it's people trying to have difficult conversations about uh, immigration, gender, comedians. How concerned are you by that prospect? I'm very concerned by that prospect. That's why we spent about three and a half years consulting on this legislation, and we've taken a very targeted and measured approach. I think Canadians should understand a few things. One is that what we're trying to do is empower their speech. There are Canadians out there that are afraid to exist online because of the abuse and the hatred they're facing online. That begs the question about what is hatred? What are you talking about, Minister, in terms of being, what are you targeting? We're targeting what the Supreme Court has defined as hatred, which is things that arise to the level of detestation and vilification. We are not targeting what I would call awful but lawful speech. Insults, uh, offensive comments, hurtful comments, those will continue to exist. Those are defended by the Charter of Rights, which I'm sworn to. 
everyone listening will say, well, of course, we don't want awful speech out there, but how do you ensure, like, I'm not talking about what will be punished, but the, the, the chill on that awful but lawful speech. So I think Canadians should feel empowered to participate in political discourse, to engage in those issues that you talked about. That's at the heart of what the Constitution protects. That's what I want to empower. The woman who spoke at the press conference talked about her entering into these kinds of discussion online and the fact that she was coward and afraid to do so because of the very serious and physical threats that she faced. I would also urge Canadians to understand that private communications are not covered, individual websites that don't host user-generated content are not covered, and that the ultimate arbiters of, of what speech is appropriately hits that hatred threshold. It's not a decision for me or for Cabinet. It's a decision that the platforms take initially, that is vetted by a digital safety commissioner, whose decisions are then vetted by a court of law. People have confidence in our courts, as do I. We spoke to the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and they warn that your Digital Safety Commission, they say, has too much power, that it would, in essence, be judge, jury, and executioner. Why give so much power to one organization? Well, I just disagree with that characterization. As I mentioned to you, the first instance is that an individual person can flag something to a platform. So first decision maker is the person. Second decision maker is the platform. What do they do with it? Third decision maker is the digital safety commissioner. That human being, the head commissioner, is chosen on by a joint resolution in Parliament, the House of Commons and the Senate. And fourth, their decision is vetted by a court of law. So that is an incorrect characterization of the bill altogether. And I think the important powers that need to be put in place are in place because we need to have different steps that are involved. The Digital Safety Commission has the power to, to make an order and declare an offence from having been committed. We know that, unfortunately, these platforms are motivated in the main by their financial bottom line, by the advertising revenue they generate through clicks and eyeballs on screens. We are changing that by ensuring that they think about the safety imperative of Canadians. That's important. My job is to keep Canadians safe. But at the same time, if bottom line economics motivates platforms, we, are, we have the ability to impose very significant penalties up to, up to 6% of global, global revenue. And I think that leads to a really interesting question. Your government has had a fraught relationship with big tech. Are you anticipating collaboration here or you're prepared that this will be a situation where your will will essentially be imposed on these platforms? I'm actually anticipating collaboration and I'll tell you why because I think the tide has turned in terms of online platforms. You're seeing that in terms of congressional hearings, you're seeing that in terms of positioning around the planet. We are about the fifth or sixth nation to move in this area which is critical. Uh, there's a legislative landscape that is changing and the the early messaging that is being received by my office is that big platforms are willing to work with us, which is very, very encouraging. And I think it's an invitation to work with us, but it comes with some strong direction. We need a digital safety plan. You need to show us how you're going to mitigate risk. You need to report back how well you're doing. But also, back to that uh, that freedom of speech point, Catherine, the really critical part about those other jurisdictions is that some of them tried a takedown of information within 24 hours across a whole host of categories. That didn't work. Some of those pieces of legislation, like in France, were struck down as a violation of free speech. We learn from that. We're not repeating those errors. We're taking a careful and measured approach, which I believe firmly protects freedom of expression, which I need to do as minister. Finally, the bill does propose something remarkable that I'd like to talk to you about. It makes it possible to impose house arrest or an electronic tag on someone who is feared to commit a hate crime but has not done so. Why do you believe that that is an appropriate restriction? 
So I think it's, it's important to really understand what's, what's contained in the legislation. Again, we're talking about hatred, which arises to detestation and vilification. We're not talking about awful but lawful comments that somebody sends out on their, on, on their smartphone while they're watching a football game. That is not what we're talking about. Secondly, what we've heard from, uh, uh, from the statistics from StatsCan is that hatred is on the rise, including online hate, about 130% rise in the last f- five years. Therefore, I've heard from law enforcement and I've heard from victims that they want us to take action. The action that we're proposing is a peace bond, which is a tool that is well understood and known and utilized already in the criminal code. So it is used in the case of domestic violence to prevent further domestic violence from occurring. Is the threshold high for achieving a peace bond? Yes, it is. One would need to appear in a court, demonstrate you have evidence that someone has threatened, in a potential hypothetical, someone has threatened a mosque or a synagogue. We know that there are antecedents there. In that situation, a peace bond could include restrictions about about being within 500 meters of said mosque or said synagogue. Courts understand how to evaluate this. They understand the significant interests that are at stake. Added as a layer of additional protection because what we're proposing is significant, is that the local attorney general in a given province would have to give their consent to even seek such a peace bond. That's an important check on the important measures and the appropriate interests that you're talking about. That's why I feel like this law is carefully calibrated. It is a big file, Minister. We hope you'll come back and talk to us about it as it proceeds through the House and the Senate. I'd be happy to. Thank you so much. Justice Minister Arif Varani. One place that's already tackling this issue is the European Union. Its version of the Online Harms Act is called the Digital Services Act. It covers a wide range of areas, including addressing disinformation, algorithms, and protecting children from online harms. Part of the design is to allow people to flag potentially illegal content. European Commission spokesperson Johannes Barker. It's now easier for users to flag something that they believe is illegal. Uh, Someone who um, has posted something that, that might be illegal, or might be harmful um, and is therefore mitigated or uh, moderated would get a notice. Um, We have a transparency database now under the DSA and 8 billion such notices have been published, I mean uploaded. Platforms need to upload these notices. So not only you as a user see, oh, um, you want to remove this, what is actually the reason? And then you would also as a platform need to give a a means to, to seek redress in case you think it's actually unjustified. Other measures the EU has put in place include banning ads for children and being able to opt out of tailored algorithms that mean you get targeted ads in your feed. So basically you can say, look, I want to opt out of profiling. You do not use my personal data. You just show me something random. Um, That is something that you don't have to use as a user, but the the opportunity to use that that option is is there with the DSA now. Um, So we see this on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, that this is now, now possible. And there's also something that we see, for example, for, for children, because the DSA bans targeted advertisements, so you cannot target children anymore with ads. You also cannot target adults based on sensitive data, so on your religion, sexual orientation, political orientation, that is forbidden now. But for children, no targeting at all. Um, but one thing is important. I mean, it's not that everything is perfect. We are in the middle of the enforcement action. We have um, launched investigations into X and TikTok, We have sent more than a dozen um, requests for information to platforms. So it's not that just because I give example of things that change means that everything is is already there where it should be. And we'll be very vigilant to make sure that the law is applied. Those investigations into TikTok and X are ongoing. But what's the potential penalty for platforms that don't comply? 
the fine is up to 6% of, of worldwide global turnover, then as the last resort, there's even the temporary suspension of the service in the European Union um, foreseen under the DSA as a, as a possibility. That would be on the consultation of the national authorities, the national digital services coordinators. But there's all already um, steps that can be taken before the fines, you know, like we can issue interim measures. Of course, we can also hopefully come to agreements with platforms uh, or we could order a platform to do a certain thing um, before we come to fines. So that's the picture in the European Union. What about closer to home? Politicians in Utah are going further when it comes to how kids use and access social media. Not only are they requiring tech companies to put age verification tools in place and get rid of features that lead to excessive use, like auto-playing videos and push alerts, they want to put in place a blackout period from 10.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m. for minors and limit the use of social media to three hours a day. Republican State Senator Michael McKell is spearheading one of the bills, which passed in the Utah Senate Wednesday night. Thanks for joining me. Well, it's good to be on. Thank you for having me. Why do you think these kinds of strict limits are required, Senator? Well, let me just let me just be clear. We we use the word social media, and 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 that's partially true. But what I think we have is a very very harmful product, and social media is a product that has been proven to be very harmful to our kids. And social media companies, what is the operation of a social media company? It's a data mining operation. And we have seen and we've made some legislative findings. I had experts from all over the world in my committee hearing. We looked at the harms caused by social media, and we need to address those. The last time, the first time that the state tried to establish laws like this, the big tech companies took you to court. How do you think this attempt is going to go over? I think it's going to go well. We've spent a lot of time. We've read a lot of decisions across the country. Uh, there's not a decision that we haven't looked at. And I, I'm very confident as we move forward with our legislation this year, with some of the improvements we've made to the bill, that I think we're on really solid legal ground. I want to lean into this question of age verification because there's a debate happening in Canada about age verification too. And part of that debate is about the perils of handing over personal information like, say, a government-issued ID to a big company. So how will it work in Utah? And we looked at that issue and we looked at it at length and, and it, it doesn't require any form of government ID to do this. This age assurance is what we call it. But we are, we are really concerned about social media and their ability to use our miners' data. And they've been mining our miners' data for a long time. And one of the things that we, we specifically call out in our legislation, we make some legislative findings, and one of those findings is these, these data mining companies, these social media companies, are exposing our miners to potential privacy and identity-related harms. And we're really making a strong effort to make sure that we protect our kids against that. We do have some age assurance tools, but those tools do not require a government ID. And, and what happens in our legislation, um, once, we, once we identify a, an account as a minor account, we do that, you know, our law requires, requires a 95% accuracy, then some really strong data privacy protections come into play and, and it's enhanced in the bill. We really want to enhance the privacy of our minors in a way that kind of differentiates the approach we've taken this year in the state of Utah. But the onus, just to be clear, even if you're not handing over ID, the onus is on the tech companies to do this age verification? Yeah, and they can do that. It's something that's very easy to do with a 95% accuracy, and it's very, very safe. That data is only used 
to to gain access to account. It's not used in any any harmful way. That that information is immediately destroyed and protected in, in a way that is very very helpful. Um, this is something that the United Kingdom has moved forward with the European Union, and it's been a very powerful tool. So, what happens if a tech company doesn't comply? They're going to be subject to our Division of Consumer Protection in the state of Utah. There are some fines that would increase over time. And that, that's the way we've done it. I think the initial fine is up, up upwards of $2,500, and that would continue to increase. In the House bill, uh, which I support, and I've worked really hard to try to help push that bill through our legislature, there is a private private right of action in that bill. But we, we have a safe harbor, so companies have an ability to meet these standards, and that's going to protect them from some liability. But if, if, if they don't comply in the legislation that I've been working on, They'll, you know, they're going to face some type of enforcement action from our Division of Consumer Protection. So, Senator, as I said, Utah was sued when they tried to do this in the past. And, and now there are some pretty stringent measures in here. We talked about, for instance, those overnight curfews. I mean, to other jurisdictions that might be listening to this, what would you say about why your model is one to follow when it is so strict and it comes with some potential legal challenges? Social media is very, very addictive. It, it has very, very addictive features. And I, I think the problem that we face is so significant. I hope other states get involved. I hope states look at different solutions. I mean, ultimately, in a, in a perfect world, and, and I'm not afraid to say this, if there are 50 different solutions in, in the United States with 50, 50 different states taking 50 different actions, I actually see that as a positive because, because our United States Congress has failed to act um, the president of the United States has talked about the problems with social media. He's been really clear. Republicans have been really clear. It's a bipartisan issue, but it's a bipartisan issue that hasn't been solved. So for me, if in a perfect scenario, I'd love to see Congress act. And, and if that means states have different solutions, and, and you're seeing that here, you're seeing some blue state solution, red state solutions. But for me, I, I want to see solutions across across the country. And if they don't look the same, I think that's going to force Congress to act. Senator McKell, thank you so much for this conversation. You know what? Thank you for having me on. This has been fun. I enjoyed it as well. Mike McKell is a Republican state senator from Utah. Okay, that is it for us this week. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. Thank you also to CBC intern Jenna Legg. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.